The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Just to bring you up to speed, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. We are now in chapter 10. Today we're going to be looking at 1 through 13, and we won't necessarily get through all 13 verses because there's so much packed into these 13 verses. Uh, We don't want to do it. uh, We want to do it justice by... Uh, taking time to look at the points of emphasis the Apostle Paul had, so we may not get to verse 13, just so you know. But 13, well, the first 13 verses, kind of a unit, goes together, it needs to stay together. Um, and we're just plugging along through this wonderful book. A lot of challenges that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he planted early in his ministry, that he pastored for a year and a half, that he left behind to go plant other churches. And a couple of years later, he had some... Uh, correspondence through writing with this church as they were having problems and they also had questions and Paul as their former pastor and also as an apostle was answering their questions in this letter and that's what this uh, 16 chapters of the Corinthian letter is all about it's Paul giving them direction answering some specific questions they had also rebuking them in some areas where they needed that and he does encourage them along the way as well so we can learn from this epistle and apply it to our own life as individual Christians but also as a church. So the title I came up with today regarding chapter 10, verse 1 through 13, is The Danger of Toying with Sin. As in the danger of kind of flirting with sin. Scripture says that sin is often tempting, even enjoyable when we indulge in it for a season. And so there's a tremendous draw many times in different areas of sin that might tempt Christians to consider toying or tampering or flirting on the edges with sin in different areas. And Paul knows that's true of the Corinthians, that they're vulnerable for that for various reasons. And so he's giving them a strong warning in chapter 10, do not even toy with sin. Don't even go close to it. Don't see how far you can push the envelope. So that's the overall theme in chapter 10. Uh, but I have a couple of reminders before we look at the details of verses 1 through 13, and this is big picture. And I, I want to make sure we keep staying big picture because if we don't see the big picture and are reminded of it continually, then there's we will be prone to taking verses myopically out of context. For example, if you have a Bible in front of you, look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Follow along as I read. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Now raise your hand if you are familiar with that verse. Okay, that's the majority of the people in here. That's, that's one of those classic verses out of the Bible, one of those great promises of God from Scripture that is just totally loaded. It is packed with truth. It's practical and relevant to our lives because we're continually confronted by trials and temptations in life. One person has well said that the nature of the Christian life is you're either entering into a temptation, you're in the midst of a temptation, or you're just coming out of a temptation. And it never stops. It's a good summary of the Christian life. And that's why this verse is so important. But I would say, if you're like me, very rarely are you given the opportunity to actually read this verse, study it, examine it, and understand it in its context. You usually just kind of pull it out. Oh, here's a great Bible verse for the promise. So today, if that's true of you, uh, we're going to really enhance the meaning and the foundation and the surrounding context of verse 
13. You may understand it in a way that you never had it ever considered before. You may even think, wow, really? Is, oh, that's what that verse means or why Paul brought it up here because he brought it up for a specific reason in this context. As a matter of fact, if you're reading along, chapters 8 through 10 as one unit, when you get to 13, you might think, oh, this is kind of out of context or this is kind of clunky or this doesn't seem to fit or why in the world did Paul insert this here? This doesn't even seem to go with the first 12 verses. And that has baffled some Christians as they read, but it definitely belongs there. Paul was guided by the Holy Spirit to put it there. That's exactly where God wanted it. That's where we need to understand it. So it's important to understand the context. But also regarding the big picture of things, just a quick summary and review. It is important to keep in mind that chapters 8, 9, and 10 go together. It is one continual, seamless argument that Paul is making from chapter 8, verse 1, all the way to the end of chapter 10, verse 33, and even spilling over into chapter 11. So that's very important to keep in mind. It is all one unit. It's answering one question. It's addressing really one dominant crowd in the Corinthian congregation. And we'll talk about who they are. And so we're looking at chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. So keep in mind it's in the context of chapters 8 through 10, and it's also wrapping up an argument that Paul is making to a specific group of people. Well, who was that specific group of people that Paul is addressing in chapter 10? It's the same group of people he was addressing in chapter 9 and in chapter 8. And it's not all the Corinthians specifically that have the problem in their thinking. It's a specific group in the Corinthian church who were overconfident, arrogant, presumptuous, self-sufficient in their understanding of Christianity, a wee bit condescending and judgmental towards other Christians who were not as doctrinally sound or smart or as intelligent or mature as they were. So it was an overconfident, spiritually arrogant bunch in the Corinthian church. It could very well be that some of these Christians had a critical spirit towards Paul. He picked that up as a theme all throughout the book of Corinthians. So that's who he's addressing, this overconfident crowd. And they were, many of them were frequenting pagan temples in Corinth even after they got saved. The city of Corinth was a debauched, secular carnal, immoral city. And the city was littered with all these uh, temples to false gods all over the city. And it was just part of the fabric of society. Idolatry, idol temples. And it, when you went inside these temples, it's like the local bar, basically. And they were everywhere. They are on every street corner. And it was also where there was great social interaction as well. And so when you go into one of these temples... You've got, it was religious in orientation. It was dominated with idols, statues, figurines, images, representing so-called gods that weren't gods at all, false gods. And with that went on all kinds of practices, sacrifices to these gods of uh, meat and other things dedicated to these false gods. They had priests in these temples. They had temple prostitutes in many of these temples. And these temple prostitutes uh, engaged in immoral behavior. There was a sin against God, but it was a part of their religion. Sexual immorality, a part of their religion. So that was true of many of these temples. So a lot of these Corinthians, before they got saved, that was how they grew up. That was their lifestyle. It was like in Los Angeles or in one of the big cities. Yeah, I grew up in a gang. I was a gang banger from the time I was three, and that's the only life that I knew. And that was my identity, and that's what I did, and I didn't know any better. And then a gang member gets saved out of that. 
What should there be? What should their relation to that gang environment be after they get saved? And the Corinthians had the same thing they had to confront. What should they got saved out of that idolatrous lifestyle that was rampant with sexual immorality as well, and worship to false gods? Now that they're saved out of it, what should be their relation? to these temples and that kind of lifestyle, being that it was everywhere in the society. It was like billboards on the street that you just had to face everywhere you went. Some of the Corinthians, actually, after they got saved, continued to go to these temples. And these were the strong Christians. Apparently, they were going and frequenting these temples. And then there were other Christians watching and probably asking them questions or maybe even confronting them, saying, wow, you shouldn't be going into that temple because, uh, well, why not? I'm free in Christ. I'm a Christian. Well, maybe you shouldn't go in there because there's actually idols in there. Oh, you immature Christian. Yeah, there's idols in there, but we know now that I'm a Christian, I know that those are just made out of rock and stick. They don't mean anything. There's only one true God. It's the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those idols, they're harmless, actually, so I'm going to keep going. Well, not only are there idols in there, but don't they, like, sacrifice meat to those idols, pretending they're gods, and and you actually eat that meat when you're in there? Yeah, but, but now that I'm a Christian, I know this meat, it's just meat. It's harmless. There aren't, aren't demons in the meat. I'm not going to get demon-possessed from eating their bologna. I have the freedom to eat meat. God made meat. God made cows, didn't he? Sounds pretty good, huh? That's a strong theological argument. God made cows. I can eat this meat. So technically, the stronger Christian is right on two points. That Yeah, those idols, they aren't really anything. They're just made out of rocks and wood. There's only one true God. And the stronger Christian was also right that meat is meat and it came from God. And if I eat it, I'm not going to be possessed by a demon if I'm a Christian. That's true. So technically, theologically speaking, he was correct. But he's missing the bigger picture. And this is why Paul writes chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 to open the eyes of the strong, arrogant, self-sufficient Christian who thinks his theology is totally intact and he's living accordingly, living out his freedoms at the neglect of serious considerations as he's living out his freedoms, as he's continuing to frequent these pagan idol temples and festivals. And so in chapter 8, Paul pointed out to this strong Christian, exercising his liberties, continuing to go to these temples, saying, you know what? You're right theologically about the Trinity and that these idols aren't anything and that meat doesn't have demons in it. That's true but you're puffed up in your understanding on this theological truth. You're overly confident in your knowledge about biblical truth and scripture. Therefore, you're susceptible to being deceived because you're so arrogant in your theological understanding from your point of view. That was their first problem. They were puffed up from theological knowledge. Uh, The second problem points out in chapter 8 that Paul does. He, He tells these strong Christians, you know what? Yeah, you're exercising your liberty, and technically, theologically, you're correct in your rationale, But you aren't even considering what your behavior and exercising your liberties is doing on other Christians around you. That you are causing them to stumble. You are self-centered. Consider that. Deny yourself your liberties if it causes other brothers around you to stumble. So they were missing that. Then Paul goes on in chapter 9 to say, like me, be like me. As an apostle when I was in your midst, I denied myself my rights and my privileges and my freedoms for the good of others around me. You need to do likewise, stronger Christian. Then finally he concludes chapter 9 to these strong, arrogant, self-sufficient Christians by saying, you know what? You're so puffed up and arrogant and deceived and blinded right now that you are vulnerable 
to having a great fall spiritually. You are so overconfident. You trust yourself too much. That's dangerous. And every one of us Christians needs to know that we can't trust ourselves. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, and if we keep trusting ourselves, we're setting ourselves up for a great fall to the point that we will even uh, be disqualified from effective ministry in the church. I could be disqualified as an apostle if I'm not careful. I don't even trust myself. I discipline myself. I beat myself up, spiritually speaking, to hold me in check, and I need accountability in my life. And you, arrogant Christian, you need to consider the same thing. You're vulnerable and susceptible to a great fall. Now, these... These Corinthians, they didn't necessarily believe that. They, had, they were overconfident in themselves, as Paul has told us. And so now he's going to go into chapter 10. And the theme of chapter 10 to these strong Christians is, he's already said, okay, strong Christians, consider how your behavior of exercising your liberties affects other people negatively. And in chapter 10, his argument is, consider how the exercise of your liberties not affects other people, but how it could affect and damage you and make you susceptible to falling into sin. In horrible ways, even falling under the wrath and the judgment or the chastisement of Almighty God. And knowing these Corinthians, based on 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, verse 18, where Paul already told them to their face, some of you are arrogant. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, knowledge puffs up and makes arrogant. So he's hammering that message away. And then he's going to conclude in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, with saying, you know what? If you keep being arrogant, you're in for a great fall. So when you're arrogant and proud, spiritually proud, sometimes you don't listen. You're not a good listener. You're not teachable. You know it all. As a matter of fact, you are a know-it-all. There are people like that. We can all get like that if we become self-sufficient in our spiritual knowledge and prideful. And so that's what some of these Corinthians are. And as a result, they're setting themselves up for a horrible fall on a personal level. So that's what Paul's going to address in chapter 10. And we'll take a look at the first 13 verses and probably just the first part of the first 13 verses today where Paul gives this very stern warning that, boy, if you keep going the way you're going with flaunting and exercising and indulging in your liberties, not only are you going to offend other Christians and cause them to sin and stumble, you yourself are going to get caught in the trap of falling into sin once again and becoming worthless, useless as a servant to the Lord. Therefore, stop toying with sin. Flee from sin. Don't flirt with sin. That's his simple message in chapter 10. So let's go ahead and break it down. This idea that every Christian, not just the Corinthians, need to understand the danger of toying with sin. This is totally true of us, isn't it? I think of our society. How is this relevant to us? Today in our society, sin is everywhere. And where we are vulnerable, I think, to toying with sin, getting caught into sin, sometimes even obliviously so, is in the world of entertainment. Whether it's Television, movies, the music, uh, it's all around us. Um, Can't even hardly go to a Giants or a sporting event game, professional, because the halftime show is either R-rated or X-rated sometimes. It's everywhere. So this is a a message that we need. Okay, Paul, how do we guard against uh, toying with sin? Three points that I uh, summarized it under, so let's go ahead and look at them. And the first uh, thing I want to do before I get to point number one, I'll just tell you point number one first. It's the danger of being ignorant about sin. And that's the first five verses, the danger of being ignorant about sin. Before we look at those first five verses, turn with me to the Old Testament, and we're going to look at five passages out of Exodus, and then we're going to look at five passages out of Numbers. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians 10, 1-13, Paul alludes to, and on one occasion even quotes, 
from those 10 passages. So the context is the days of Moses, 1400 B.C., in the desert for 40 years, as Moses is leading uh, the Jews out of Egypt through the desert and eventually into the Promised Land. That's the big picture. And so Paul's going to make reference uh, to that context. First, I want you to go to Exodus chapter 13, and we're going to read a few passages out of it. You've got to follow along, because if you're not following along and not understanding the context, you're not going to really get what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 10. Starting in uh, Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, I'll pick up there. Uh, what has happened at this point in Exodus 13, Moses just led 600,000 Jewish men or Israelite men out of Egypt as they they were slaves in Egypt. 600,000 men, one guy Moses, including not not counting the children and probably the women. So all estimates are that Moses was responsible for leading 2 million Israelites out of slavery, out of Egypt. Two million. I can't even imagine. So he leads them uh, out. They're going to cross the Red Sea. Let's look at uh, Exodus 13, verse 21. They've been in, by the way, slavery under Egypt for 400 years, and now they're going to be liberated and set free. And Moses begins to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Exodus uh, 13, starting at verse 18, says, Hence God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Verse 20, then they set out from Sukkoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Verse 21, and the Lord, or Yahweh, was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day and uh, to lead them on the way and in a a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So the Lord God literally leads two million Israelites and God manifests his presence literally in this, in a, some kind of a visible pillar of a cloud. We don't know how long it was but it was, or how high it was, but maybe it was taller than this building, this huge massive cloud that they could literally see, kind of like a tornado moving along with this, the tornado of Almighty God. And it was God's presence. God was literally present in that cloud. During the day, it would provide protection for the people as it led them, kind of like a a GPS. And also at nighttime, it provided safety and protection for them as it turned into a pillar of fire at nighttime, providing light and protection from their enemies, also giving them security. But God's presence was in the cloud. As a matter of fact, Exodus 16 says, the glory of the Lord was in the cloud. The glory of the Lord himself was in the cloud. Uh, There are times where that cloud would come down, and when God wanted to speak to Moses face to face, it said that God spoke through the cloud to Moses. So when Moses talked to God, he was talking into the cloud. Somehow, God was in the cloud. That's amazing. So the cloud literally had God's presence in it. And then we just read that this pillar led the Israelites for 40 years in the desert, and the the pillar of cloud never left. Even though they sinned again and again and again and again, God remained faithful to his people, and he never left his presence in that cloud. That cloud was with them for 40 years in the desert. Absolutely amazing. Moses, uh, Numbers 14, 14, this is like almost 40 years later, (laughs) Moses said to the Lord, Lord, you go up before your people in a pillar of cloud. So Moses is acknowledging that God was in that cloud. Absolutely amazing. Okay, let's go on to chapter 14. Uh, as they're beginning their trek um, 
to lead two million people out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, Exodus 14, 14 says the following. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. So the people start complaining early on because they're afraid. They think they're going to die in the wilderness. They see, uh, oh, there's a big sea in front of us. We can't cross it. Man, there's the Egyptian army with Pharaoh and his 600 soldiers. We are going to die. Moses, why did you bring us out here? We would have rather stayed in Egypt than to die out here in the wilderness. And they're, they're literally grumbling, grumbling and complaining uh, to Moses for their situation. So Moses pleads on their behalf, prays to God. Uh, and then verse 14, the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Quit complaining. Trust me, says the Lord. Verse 15, and the Lord said to Moses, uh, why are you crying out? Uh, and then in verse 16, and as for you, Moses, lift up your staff. So he had a walking stick that was a staff. And stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land instantaneously so that the waters were instantly divided. Verse 22, and the sons of Israel, all two million of them, went through the midst of the sea on dry land. That's a miracle. And the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. Two million Jews walking through this Red Sea, huge, massive walls just that God had parted, and they walk across the Red Sea in miraculous fashion. Verse 26, Then the Lord God said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and horsemen. So after all two million Israelites made it through, then Moses had the waters come down and the Red Sea came onto Pharaoh's army and drowned every single last Egyptian soldier. And then Moses says, Thus you have seen the salvation of the Lord. That is one of the most historic events in the history of the world. The, the crossing of the Red Sea. Go to Exodus chapter 16. Starting at verse 1. Then they set out. Now this is about 30 days later. They had just seen a miracle like they had never seen before in their entire life. The Red Sea parting. You would think that would build their confidence in God and Moses? Not. One thing that's interesting for all 40 years as you read it in Exodus through Numbers is they just keep complaining and complaining and complaining and complaining and complaining and complaining. And com Have you ever been a parent and complaining and complaining and complaining? But anyway. So here it is, 30 days later, this unbelievable miracle of crossing the Red Sea, let alone the 10 plague miracles that God did that was absolutely amazing. 30 days later, then they set out from Elam, a city, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel, 2 million people came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month, after their departure from the land of Egypt, that's a month later, 30 days later after that amazing miracle, verse 2, everybody came up to Moses and was so thankful and said, Moses, you're awesome. Can I have your autograph? Not. Verse 2, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel in unison, a cacophony of whining, complaining towards Moses, their humble leader. The sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. That word is used dozens and dozens of times in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Grumble, 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 grumble. And because they're grumbling against Moses, they're grumbling against God. Because Moses is God's man. Verse 3. And the sons of Israel complained and whined to Moses and Aaron. Would that we had died in the, by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. We should have just stayed in Egypt and died there instead of dying out here in the wilderness where we're starving to death. Verse 4. Yahweh said to Moses, Hmm, 
because God heard this grumbling. God doesn't like grumbling. Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. See, so instead of punishing them, God is gracious. Oh, okay, they're hungry. I'll provide supernatural bread for you. Behold, I will rain bread down from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Verse 8, and Moses said, uh, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to fill you in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumbling, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Verse 9. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in verse 10. And then it goes on to say how God provided for them uh, with manna from heaven. So literally every morning, God would provide supernatural food from heaven, supernatural bread. They would gather on the ground, and they they were supposed to go out in the morning and gather enough to eat per person. And it was sufficient for the day. This was manna from heaven, and God provided it every day. They weren't supposed to gather it and collect it and save it for the next day, except on the Sabbath day where they would gather two days' worth. God provided manna for the Israelites for 40 years. It was perfect. There was enough for all of them to eat. Nobody starved. Apparently it was uh, nutritionally uh, sufficient. After all, manna came from heaven. It's kind of interesting. I think it's Psalm 78 where it calls it angel food. I wonder if that's where angel food cake came from. I love angel food cake. Mm. Can you imagine angel food cake? That's like vanilla wafers all over the lawn in the morning. Bring it on. So God's providing manna in the morning, and then at nighttime he's providing quail. So they've got everything they need. God is the provider. You would think that after all the miracles and the amazing provisions, they'd be a thankful people. Not. Go to Exodus uh, 17 now. Verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel, two million Israelites, journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord. They camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Oh, we're thirsty. Yeah, I like the vanilla wafers, and I like the quail, but where's the drinks? Where's the Snapple? What's up, Moses? And get this, they grumbled again. Verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses. He went from grumbling to quarreling. And they said to Moses, give us water. Uh, Verse 3, but the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses. Verse 4, so Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, man, what shall I do with this people? A little more, and they will stone me to death. God, are you watching? Then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. That's what I like to do whenever I'm in trouble or afraid of somebody. I take the elders with me. But anyway... And take in your hand uh, your staff with which you struck the Nile River and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. So Moses goes and stands on a rock. And he's got his staff. He's got the elders with him. And God told him to strike the rock. And when you do, water will come out of the rock. And the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. Struck the rock and boom, water for everybody. Sufficient water for two million people. Another miracle. Absolutely amazing. Okay, go to Exodus 32. So shortly after this, God calls Moses up onto Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. It was where the water flowed out of at the bottom of that mountain. And God tells Moses, Moses, I want you to come up here because I'm going to give you revelation. I'm going to give you uh, the covenant for the people. I'm going to give you the 633 laws that uh, need to dictate this new nation that we're going to build called Israel. And I'm also going to give you the Ten Commandments. And so Moses goes up there in obedience to the Lord. And he's up there for 40 days, and he's getting the Ten Commandments, and God's carving the Ten Commandments out of stone, out of the rock. 
supernaturally, amazingly, but he's literally writing out, or with the help of Almighty God, Moses is writing out these Ten Commandments in the stone, in the rock, as God gives them one at a time. Now, while Moses is up there getting the Ten Commandments, he left two million Jews down at the bottom of the hill. They, they don't have a clue where Moses is. And now days have gone by. Maybe weeks have gone by now. And the people are getting restless. They're getting antsy. Uh, they're wondering, wow, Moses isn't coming back. It's been three weeks. It's been four weeks. It's been almost 40 days. He's not coming back. He's probably dead. Uh, we need to move on. Oh, well, so much for Moses. And so that's the context of these two million discontent Israelite people that God has so loved. So look at Exodus 32 at the beginning, chapter uh 32 verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron. Aaron was Moses' older brother. He's kind of the co-prophet. So they go to Aaron, who's now uh, second in command, and two million people, or how many people said to Aaron, come Aaron, make us a God who will go before us. Make us a God. Make us an idol. You know what's ironic? They're saying this at the exact same time where God is up on the hill talking to Charlton Heston or, or Moses, whoever it was, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And while God's doing that, they're saying, Hey, Aaron, make us a god. And then God says, Thou shalt have no graven images. And while God's doing that, the people are going to say, Hey, Aaron, make us a graven image of a calf. I mean, there is no greater irony. Uh, Make us a god who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what is becoming him. Wow, what (laughs) what good friends. Verse 2, Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings. Wait, what what a great spiritual leader. Good job, Aaron. Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And Aaron took all the gold from their hand and he fashioned or made... Uh, the gold obviously melted it, turned it into molten gold, formed it, and with it, and a graving tool, he made it into a molten calf. He made an idol. He made a false or a god-like image. And then they saw this. Behold your God. And the people said, This is your God, O Israel. Get this. Who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Wow. They, they knew it was Yahweh that brought them up from the land of Egypt. Gets worse. Verse 5. And now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh your God, the calf God. So even Aaron is calling the very personal name of God Yahweh. He's calling that calf Yahweh. Uh, verse, And then it goes on. Um, verse 6. So the next day they arose early and offered burnt offerings to this calf, this idol, blasphemy against God, and they brought peace offerings to the idol, and the people sat down to eat and drink, so they even had festivities in honor of this calf false god. And after they were done eating and drinking, there was probably a lot of alcohol going on as well. It says they rose up to play. To play is a euphemism for immoral activity, basically an orgy. All the while, basically an orgy. All the while, God's on to the next commandments with Moses. Do not commit adultery. Did not covet another man's wife, which is subject to the death penalty. God judged many of these people severely and even with death. Okay, now go to Numbers. Book of Numbers. Pretty much now we're going 40 years into the future. 39 years later. They've been wandering around in the desert for 40 years. It doesn't take 40 years to go from Egypt to the promised land in Israel, by the way. 
Should have been done in just a few months. But because of disobedience, lack of faith, grumbling, whining, and complaining, a lack of trust in Yahweh God the Savior, God's consequence or punishment for those people was, as a result, you are not allowed into the promised land. Anybody here that's 20 years old and older? Okay, if you're 20 years old or older, I want you to raise your hand. 20 or older, raise your hand. Okay, you would all be dead. And me. Anybody 20 years old or older who left Egypt... You're going, to be die, you're going to die in the wilderness. You will not get to go in the promised land. So it's 19-year-olds and under. Anybody else that's born in, over the course of those 40 years, then they will be allowed to go into the promised land. That's a severe consequence. Think about it. Two million people were set free from slavery in Egypt. Two million Israelites, and only two of those two million get to go into the promised land, and that is Joshua and Caleb. That means that Two, less than two million died in the wilderness and most of them were just strewn out all over the wilderness as they walked for 40 years. There were just tombstones or burial grounds everywhere, littered all over the desert with corpses and dead bodies. So now we're 40 years later. Soon they're going to enter the promised land. You'd think they would have learned their lesson as they've seen thousands and thousands of their own people die mostly from the judgment and the wrath and the chastisement of God. Numbers chapter 14, uh, verse 26. It's been a long haul. You would think they would have stopped complaining by now, but they don't. They keep complaining. Forty years later, they're still whining and complaining. They're saying the same thing, too. Oh, we should have stayed in Egypt. It would be better to die there than here in the wilderness. I mean, here people have been dying for 40 years because of their disobedience. In verse 26, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Moses say to them, As I live, says Yahweh, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Verse 29, Your, co- your corpses shall fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and onward, because you have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you, except Caleb and Joshua, the son of Nun. Verse 31, your children, however, whom you said uh, would become a prey, I will bring them into the promised land, and they shall know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses shall fall in the wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness. And they shall suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. Uh, Go to number 16, two chapters over. Verse 41 at the end of chapter 16. But on the the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses. Wow, they took God's threat seriously, didn't they? They grumbled again against Moses and Aaron, saying, You are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. It came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of the meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among this congregation, in order that I may consume it instantly. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their face, pleading with God, and Moses and Aaron said to God, Take your censer, uh, and Moses, sorry, said to Aaron, Take your censer and put it in uh, in fire from the altar and lay incense on it and bring it quickly to the congregation to make atonement for them. Then Aaron did as Moses had spoken and went and interceded for the people. Verse 48, And he took his stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. But those who died by the plague were 14,000 people as a result of just simply complaining and grumbling. That was the sin that caused the death of 1,400 people. The sin was grumbling and complaining. 
You know, Philippians 2 says, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Philippians 2.14, as a Christian. Part of the Christian ethic, a Christian discipline is to not complain. The positive side of that is to be thankful, right? Be thankful. Be thankful in all things, no matter what's going on, out of your love and devotion for God. That's why Paul said, if you're a Christian and you want to be a light and an example in the dark society that you're in, then you need to be a person typified by uh, being thankful and not being a grumbling, complaining person because you're insulting God when you complain if you're a Christian. It's a tremendous challenge. So here's a challenge for you and for me in light of this. In light of the fact that God hates grumbling, it is a sin. It is so wicked that God slaughtered 14,000 Israelites instantly for grumbling and complaining against God. Try uh, after church day getting home to your house from church and having lunch without complaining one time. If you're driving a car, that will be a challenge because of the drivers around you and our human nature. But that's what God said. That's the Christian ethic. Be thankful to the Lord, not a grumbler and complainer. Okay, we're almost done. Numbers 20. And again, Paul refers to all these uh, incidents. Numbers 20, starting at verse 1, Then the sons of Israel, again, this is 40 years later, the whole congregation came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam was already dead, verse 2, and there was no water again for the congregation. And they assembled. Okay, now there's no water again. Now you would think that from history... Remember when we didn't have any water and we went and talked to Moses and Moses provided supernaturally for 2 million people and God's provided water for us for 40 years and now we don't have any water so you would think that, oh, God will probably provide us water again. That's not what they're thinking. There was no water, verse 2, for the congregation and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron again. Verse 3, and the people thus contended with Moses. They argued with Moses. They quarreled with Moses. And they spoke saying, if only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Wow. Verse 6, Then Moses and Aaron came in front of the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting. They fell on their faces, and the glory of God, or Yahweh, appeared to Moses and Aaron. Yahweh said to Moses, verse 8, Take your rod, Moses, you and your brother Aaron. Listen carefully to what God tells Moses to do. Because I said two million people left Egypt. Only two went into the promised land, Caleb and Joshua. I didn't say Moses. Even though Moses was the most humble man in his day, he was a prophet of God, loved by God, faithful to God, sacrificial servant before God, but Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land because of his disobedience. In this scenario right here, God told Moses, take your staff or your rod, you and your brother Aaron, assemble before this bully, mean congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes. Speak to the rock. That's it. Speak to the rock. As the story goes on, look at who Moses speaks to. Speak to the rock before their eyes in order that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. Verse 9, so Moses took the rod. Okay, that was good. He's obeying so far. He took the rod from before the Lord just as God had commanded him. Nice. Step one, verse and then verse 10, and Moses and Aaron, okay, he's with Aaron, good, that's step two. Gathered the assembly, okay, that's step three, so far so good. Goes before the rock, oh, okay, that's good. And then Moses said to the people, oops, he's supposed to speak to the rock, not the people. And he wasn't nice to the people either. He said, listen now, you rebels. So he's usurping God's right and authority. God was going to reprimand the people, Moses takes it upon himself. Supposed to speak to the rock, not the people. Listen, you rebels. 
Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And then Moses lifted up his hand and he struck the rock twice with the rod. God said, speak to the rock. He struck the rock and water came forth abundantly. Even though Moses disobeyed, God still blessed the people and brought plenty of water for all to drink. Okay, and then look at the next chapter, chapter 21, verse 4. Then they sat down from Mount Hor. They're almost there at the promised land, just about ready to enter. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. Man, Moses, why are we taking the long route again? That's what they're complaining about. Verse 5, And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this miserable food. I am sick of the vanilla wafers that God has given us and the, and the meat that God has provided. What a discontent folk. Verse 6, And the Lord, Yahweh, sent fiery serpents among the people, and the serpents bit the people. God sent a plague of these serpents, and these serpents were biting the people, poisoning the people, a very strong uh, sting to the people. And then Moses intervened on their behalf. He interceded, God, have mercy on your people. And then God said, okay, uh, raise up one of these, uh, make a serpent and raise it up in the air. And anybody that's willing to look at the serpent in faith will be healed. And a few people did. That a serpent that was raised up. Uh, but thousands of people died as a result of this incident. And then finally, let's look at chapter 25. This is the last one that Paul refers to. Chapter 25, starting at verse 1. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. They started intermarrying with pagan wives. That was a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. Why? Well, the Moabites, these pagans, idol worshipers, they invited the Israelite people to come to their parties. Hey, come socialize with us. Come party with us. Hang out with us. Check out our families. Check out our festivities. You'll love it. Good food. Great entertainment. So they invited the Israelites to sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate. The Israelites ate their food, bowed down to their gods, compromised. So Israel joined themselves to Baal, false god of Peor. And the Lord Yahweh was angry as a result with the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each one of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman, a pagan woman, in the sight of Moses and all the Israelites and in the sight of the congregation of the sons of Israel. And while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting because of all the sin, there's a guy that's going to compromise and commit adultery with some pagan woman. Verse 7, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this compromise, he rose up from the midst of the congregation. He took a spear in his hand. He went after the man of Israel who was compromising into his tent, and he pierced both of him and the woman through, and the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked by God. And those who died by the plague that day were 24,000 people in one day. Wow. So that's a quick jet tour summary of how it went for 40 years. Uh, let's go now to 1 Corinthians 10, and we'll look at the first five verses. And Paul says to the Corinthians, um, there is a danger of being ignorant about sin. So let me enlighten you about what went on in the Old Testament with Moses and God's people. Look at verse 1. Follow me as, as I read. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, and they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. 
Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. So what Paul is doing here is the point I put there was the danger of being ignorant about sin. He doesn't want the Corinthians to be ignorant about sin. He doesn't want them to be ignorant about history, Old Testament history, the sin of those of faith who have gone before them, and also what God thinks about sin. He doesn't want them to be ignorant of what has come before them. And someone has wisely said that those who ignore the past are doomed to repeat it. Those who ignore the past are doomed to repeat it, to ignore reality, to ignore history. So we need to be aware of the Old Testament. We need to learn from the Old Testament. And that's what Paul's trying to tell the Corinthians. Because the problem was, Paul looks at the Corinthians and the way they behave and what they're like, especially in light of all the spiritual privilege that they have received in Christ. And Paul is very nervous. And as he's diagnosing the Corinthian Christians, he doesn't just see the Corinthian Christians. He says, you guys are eerily similar to the Israelites under the days of Moses. There are good things about that, but there are a lot of bad things about that comparison. That's the analogy that he's making in the parallel. For example, uh, the Corinthians and the Israelites in the Old Testament experienced salvation or deliverance. Two million Jews experienced deliverance just like the Corinthians experienced salvation on a spiritual level. Uh, The Israelites became free and were liberated. The Corinthian Christians were liberated, spiritually speaking. Uh, The Israelites in the Old Testament received all kinds of blessings from God. The Corinthians received all kinds of blessings in Christ. The Israelites in the Old Testament under Moses were arrogant. The Corinthian Christians were arrogant. The Israelites in Moses' day turned on their spiritual leader. Time and time again, the Corinthians have turned on Paul and will continue to do so into the book of 2 Corinthians. The Israelites in the Old Testament grumbled. Apparently, there were grumblers in the Corinthian congregation. The Israelites in the Old Testament toyed with sin, toyed with idols, toyed with idol meat with the pagans. That's exactly what the Corinthians were doing and trying to justify it. The Israelites in Moses' day got involved in sexual immorality. There were plenty of Corinthian Christians getting involved in sexual immorality. We've already talked about that. The Israelites in Moses' day tested God and put him to the test, presumed on his gracious forgiveness. That's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. The Israelites in Moses' day craved evil. Some of these Corinthians were craving evil. And in light of that comparison, Paul says, you know what? You're just like the Israelites of old. And because of all their compromises, they suffered dramatic, horrifying consequences from the chastening and the holy wrath of God. And you guys are inevitably going to face the same thing if you don't stop and if you're not aware. So don't be ignorant of those who have gone before you in faith. Just because you start out well doesn't mean you're going to finish well. Just because you're enjoying the blessings of God doesn't mean you are free from the chastisement of God. Just because you have spiritual knowledge doesn't mean you're susceptible to falling to sin and temptation. That's the essence of his warning. So let's go ahead and look at the details. Let's not be ignorant of those who have gone before us in the Old Testament and the truths that it can teach us. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. I want you to be informed about the Old Testament and God's people in the Old Testament because that's where you came from. We are descendants, Christians, of the Jewish Old Testament covenant believers. Even though most of us are not Jewish, they are our forefathers in terms of the faith. And the reason is because they had a covenant relationship with the same God we have a relationship with through Jesus Christ. So they're our fathers because we know the same God. That's the common denominator. It's the same triune God of the universe. He never changes. 
And by the way, nothing about God changes. His character is the same. His hatred for sin is the same. He's got the same attitudes towards specific sins. That hasn't changed for 6,000 years. What God thinks of idolatry in the Old Testament, God still thinks of idolatry today and in the New Testament. What God thought of grumbling in the Old Testament hasn't changed. He still despises it, hates it, and is worthy of death today. God hasn't changed. So that's Paul's main point. I don't want you to be unaware of how God thought about all these sins that we still share in common with our Old Testament believing friends uh, and believers. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers, the Old Testament Israelites and Moses' date, were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. So, and he uses the word, by the way, all five times. He uses the word all two times in verse 1, one time in verse 2, one time in verse 3, one time in verse 4. The point is that everybody was included in the same spiritual blessings that God gave out through Moses. Nobody was exempt. They all got to cross through the Red Sea and see God's glorious deliverance. They all got to see the pillar before them and behind them that protected them. They all got to partake in the manna that came down from heaven. They all got to partake of the water that came supernaturally out of the rock. They all got to see the miracles that God was doing. And so he's saying, all, all, all. All received the same privileges and blessings from Almighty God. All of them. They all passed under the cloud. They all passed through the Red Sea, verse 2. They were all baptized into Moses. What does that mean? They were all identified. Baptism, baptizo, is used eight different ways in the New Testament. Eight. Two of those refer to water baptism, the baptism of John the Baptist and the baptism of Christian baptism. The other six are metaphorical with no water involved. Baptism means to be immersed in or to be identified with. That's how it's used here. There's no water involved here. Uh, the two million Israelites were baptized or identified with the leadership of Moses. They were one uh, entity. There was solidarity in their faith and in the covenant that Moses was their leader and the mediator between them and God. They were part of that covenant community. That's what he means by baptized. It's not talking about baptism getting dunked in water. Moses didn't perform baptisms. In other words, all two million were identified with Moses as their leader under God's leadership by virtue of the cloud that he provided and also through the Red Sea. Verse 3, and they all, every single one of them, ate the same spiritual food. That was the manna that came down from heaven. Verse 4, all two million of them drank the same spiritual drink, the water that came out of the rock. By the way, in Exodus 17, water came out of the rock. That was at the beginning of the 40 years. God replicated that miracle again at the end of the 40 years in the book of Numbers. The exact same miracle where water came out of the rock, supernaturally. At the very word and command of Moses, Paul gives extra revelation about what was going on there. How did God make that happen? Well, here's a key truth. Verse 4, they all drank from the same spiritual rock. Spiritual, it means literal water, but it was provided from a supernatural source from heaven. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock, or they were drinking water that was provided supernaturally from heaven, which followed them. There was a spiritual presence that literally followed Israel for 40 years wherever they went. There was the presence in the pillar of cloud. But there was another presence that followed them, according to Exodus, and that was an angel of the Lord followed them wherever they went. That's what Scripture says. And there was another presence that always followed them and probably unbeknownst to them. And Paul tells us that presence was Christ himself. There's a spiritual rock that followed the Israelites for 40 years wherever they went, and that rock was the Messiah, Christ. The pre-incarnate Jesus Christ was with the Israelite people for 40 years wherever they went. That's absolutely amazing. They didn't, the Israelites didn't realize that at the time. The triune God was with them wherever they went. He would never leave them nor forsake them. 
What great privilege that they had. Nevertheless, in light of all these privileges that all two million had, verse 5, nevertheless, sadly, most of them, most of them, which is an understatement, God was not well pleased with. They were disobedient. And as a result, they were laid low in the wilderness, literally strewn out in the wilderness, their dead bodies, their corpses, all over the place for 40 years. Take heed, Corinthians. Don't be like the Israelites of old who enjoyed great spiritual, physical, and literal privileges from Almighty God in His grace. And He was supernaturally and incredibly patient. And yet they were not thankful for it. And they hardened their hearts towards God and they suffered drastic consequences as a result. And Paul's telling them, you know what? The same thing can happen to you and to me. Every believer is vulnerable because of the deceitfulness of sin. Okay, let's go on to point number two. So there's the danger of being ignorant about sin. Let's not be ignorant about sin. Let's identify it, define it, and realize what God thinks of it and also see where we're vulnerable in areas of sin. We've got to be honest. That's how we guard against sin. So there's a danger of being ignorant about sin, but there's also a danger of being just downright indulgent in sin, toying with it, tampering with it, kind of putting your toe in the water. Oh, I just want to test the water. I just want to push the envelope a little bit. I just want to see how far to the edge I can go without compromise. We do that all the time. The Corinthians were doing that. You go too far trying to test the edges, you're going to fall off the cliff. And there will be serious consequences, and that's Paul's point in 6 through 11. Let's, let's read that. Now, these things happen in the Old Testament for us Christians living in Paul's day, also for us in our day, in order that we should not crave evil things as they also crave. So we're supposed to learn from the Old Testament. God wrote the Old Testament not just for the people in that day, but also for His church and for us. It's a gift from God, written Scripture is. He wants us to learn from the past. Verse 7, And do not be idolaters, as some of them were in Moses' day. It is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they stood up to play. Sexual immorality. After building the golden calf. Verse 8, Don't let us uh, act immorally, sexually immoral, like some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day, and they were punished by God. Verse 9, and don't let any of us test the Lord or be presumptuous upon His grace and His provision as some of the Israelites did and were destroyed by the serpents that we saw in Numbers 21. And let's not grumble like they did for 40 years over and over and over again. And as a result, God was angry and many of them were destroyed by the destroyers we saw in Numbers 16. And almost 2 million of them weren't allowed in the Promised Land as a result and they died in the desert. Don't you understand, Corinthians? These things happened in the Old Testament and were written down as an example for us. Paul uses the word type. They are a pattern for us to watch and follow and be aware of. And this stuff has been written down for our example, for our edification, that we won't make the same mistakes that they made, that we'll understand that God doesn't change and the same God that dealt with the Israelites is the same God we deal with today. He hates sin. He must punish sin. And the consequences and the wages of sin is death. That has not changed. You mean every sin that I commit is worthy of death? Absolutely. God hasn't changed. The wages of sin is death. That's what Romans says. You mean I deserve the death penalty from a holy God? Absolutely. Every sinner does. Well, that's kind of scary. It is scary. Well, that sounds like bad news. It is bad news. But there is good news. And the good news is the gospel. And that's what the word gospel means. Because God isn't just a holy God who must punish sin. God is not just a God of wrath. God is not just a God who 
must condemn people to hell for their sin. God is also a loving God, a merciful God, a patient God who loves his creation, who loves the people that he created and made. And yes, he must punish them with death and eternal damnation because of their sin. But out of his heart of love for his creation, he provided a fantastic solution by sending his son, Jesus Christ, down from heaven to take on a human body. And Jesus lived as the God-man, a perfect life for 33 years. And Jesus willingly went and died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. And he never committed a sin. He never committed a crime. He was always 100% obedient to God the Father, but he willingly went to the cross. He willingly gave his life and got executed like a criminal on a cross. And while he was being executed for six hours that day, God the Father, invisibly, supernaturally, and spiritually, and literally, was pouring out his wrath on Jesus, who never sinned or did anything wrong. And Jesus was absorbing that wrath as a substitute for any human sinner who would come and plead to Jesus and ask for forgiveness of sin and believe that, Lord Jesus, thank you for being my substitute. Thank you for absorbing the wrath of the Father that would condemn me to hell that I deserved. And I believe in you, that you are the perfect substitute as the God-man, and that you have the ability to forgive all of my sin and adopt me into the family of God so that now I can be at peace with this holy God who is now my Father. And I repent of my sin, and I ask you to be my Savior and rescue me and I believe this in faith. And if you believe that and pray that, then Jesus, the moment you believe that and pray that, Jesus will save your life. He will save you from your sin and He'll transform you from the kingdom of Satan and put you into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And you will become a child of God. And the moment you believe that, the gospel, that Jesus died on your behalf as your substitute, the moment you truly believe it and understand it, you will be born again, regenerated. The Spirit of God will cont- begin to live in you And you are literally adopted into the family of God and you are secure for all eternity. And all of your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, because Jesus died as your substitute. That is good news. Now I am ready for lunch. So going back to 1 Corinthians. Don't indulge in these sins. And he named five of them, by the way. And let me just reiterate what they were. Okay, Corinthians, don't crave evil things. Don't go after what the world desires. That's sinful, verse 6. Don't get involved in idolatry. Stop going to those pagan temples where the idols are because the problem is not only are there idols there and idol meat, there was also sexual immorality going on. That would be like today a Christian saying, yeah, I can go to a strip bar. Because, well, first of all, I don't get drunk when I go to the strip bar. Uh, I don't get involved in any uh, nefarious behavior. Uh, I still like my wife when I get home. And after all, you know, God made the human body, didn't he? I mean, the human body is beautiful, isn't it? This is the kind of rationalization and justification that the Corinthians were doing. And I have actually talked to Christians who have rationalized and justified sinful behavior in that very process of thinking. And that's what Paul's trying to warn them of. Don't toy with sin. Get away from the idolatry. Don't crave evil things. Don't be idolaters. Uh, Don't get involved in sexual immorality. Don't test the Lord and presume upon His grace. And don't grumble, but be thankful to the Lord. And if you're a thankful person in light of all that God has done for you, God will bless you as a result. Well, with that, that is plenty to apply to our own life in light of all these truths to meditate on, to think upon, and try to honor the Lord 
in every area of our life. But we need His grace and His help to do it. Next week we're going to pick up on the third point because it's about sin, trials, and temptation. And it it is so important because every one of us is always uh, in proximity to a a trial in our life. And we need to take our time and pause to see what God's strategy is in, in dealing with that in the right way. And we want to do it in the proper context as well. So with that, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for the wonderful privilege to be with God's people, the saints, fellow believers. Thank You for the treasure of Your Word. I'm reminded of how thankful we should be for the Old Testament and how You use it to uh, continue to instruct us and remind us of who You are and what You're like. God, help us to fulfill these imperatives for those of us who are Christians that we can't do in our own strength. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And thank You, Lord Jesus, for being a blessed and good Savior. We give You all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.